You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, first of all, thanks for subscribing to the premium podcast for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It helps so much. We recently had on as a guest John Avlon. He is the editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast. Now, the very reason that I could even do interviews on the program is that because of the support of people like yourself, uh, I'm able to not only cover some of the fees associated with the podcasts, website fees, storage fees, equipment fees, the like, but to develop new microphones and new software that uh, can be useful for interviews. Prior to this, I had received a few interview requests, but had to turn some of them down. So I think this is going to be a useful feature, both for the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast, but also, I think, from time to time for interviewing people for this premium podcast only and available to you. It was a big development to have someone of John Avalon's stature to recognize my history can beat up your politics, and indeed, it was he that sought out an invitation. John illuminated some points about Washington's farewell message, his farewell address, such an important address at the end of his presidency, but some of it went so fast that I wanted to take some of them on and just give a little bit more development. I mean, He really emphasized a three-dimensional Washington, a real person who existed, a politician, balancing a lot of partisan interests when he was president. He also described him as a man in great physical and psychic pain, to quote John, I mean, at the time that he was leaving office and writing this address, wounded by the press, wounded by the partisanship and the but the bickering between his friends. So those are the two basic tenets that I think John's interview and his book reinforces. And that was that one, that Washington, again, is a three-dimensional real person. And also that at the time he was speaking, at the writing of the farewell address, something was going on that you really can't say for many of the rest of the American presidents. And that is that there was a chance that the American Republic wouldn't work out. And hence the need for his warning. I mean, it didn't have to work out that way. That's one of the things John emphasized. He did it very quickly, but it's one of the things he said. So I'd like to reinforce that here. Uh, John Adams, and you were treated to the letters of Jefferson and Adams. I read some of them verbatim on the premium podcast, but They're long, and sometimes you might miss things that they're saying. But one thing you'll note that Adams says to Jefferson in one of their first letters is he describes how when he was going to France on a diplomatic mission, there was this horrible storm, and it killed someone on the ship. And he was using that as a metaphor to describe the American Republic. But he also said, and this is them writing in 1812, I don't feel any differently today. So there is still that sense that you have to take yourself back to that this experiment could still fail. And that gives Washington's farewell address such deep meaning. 
John acknowledged in the interview, we repeated many points about it, how it used to be taught in schools, how it was used during like the First World War, how Lincoln read it to the troops at, in, the, in the Union Army, or had it read to the troops. But it's become kind of the Old Testament, while well, the Gettysburg Address says the New Testament, easier, quicker, easier to learn. It is difficult somewhat to, to read um, Washington's Address. I, for the life of me, couldn't imagine anyone memorizing it. Uh, let alone like every school child in, in America. It's just difficult type of writing. We didn't get to talk about it a lot, but John had referenced how the farewell address had a role in the Civil War. And one of the Washington makes it very clear that he's a support of the Union and he doesn't like at all the idea of breaking into geographic parts. Here's one of the passages. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, slight, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have, in a common cause, fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, suffering, and successes. And he goes on to explain while the North needs unrestrained intercourse with the South, and the South needs things from the North, all right? The South supplies resources to the North. The North supplies manufacturers to the South, and the same with the East and West. His words, when applied to some of the arguments, say, of um, those that were seeking succession, Secession in South Carolina in 1860. You know, are a powerful counter. They're also a counter to some of the kind of retro uh, Confederate talk that you hear these days, or maybe that the cause was right, um, that it was okay to split from the Union if you had a grievance. And you see that. I participated in Internet discussions about that. I think the Internet has brought back some debates that you never would have had in, in, in person in the past. But it also, when so often you hear that there wasn't a need for a strong national government, that it really was just this collection of very strong independent states that fought Britain. In that line, Washington makes it clear that that's not coming from him, all right? You have in common cause fought in triumph together. Independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils, joint efforts, common dangers, suffering, and successes. Oh, about a year ago, I had a very large debate um, with an individual, kind of on that neo-Confederate kick. But really what he was saying is the founders understood the law of nations and each state was truly a state. And I wish I had had thought of that quote or had that quote at the ready during that debate. I did have a quote from Madison who who said that anyone who would betray the Union was like a terrible serpent and that kind of thing. And I also note that in the Articles of Confederation, it calls for perpetual union. So, yes, it was one country, even if it was called, you know, the United States. And even if you did say the United States are back then and the United States is now I, that's just linguistics. I don't think that changes the meaning at all. One country, one country fought the revolution. 
So just one more feather in the cap of, of those who have that argument within the um, Washington's address. Didn't get a chance to talk about it too much. It was used as powerful rhetoric during the Civil War, particularly on the Union side, and to reinforce Lincoln's feelings and his rhetoric. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. We talked a lot about how Washington is anti-partisan, but these days if you're anti-partisan like John had referred to, it's just this kind of mushy middle and I think that's very different from what he's talking about. In fact, I think Washington uh, described in, you know, in the Colonial Williamsburg website as the most athletic and robust of all of the founders. I mean, he's a strong man. He wasn't someone that was weak uh, or, or doing something like this out of supplication. Indeed, he felt the weakness was the people who were in the parties. I've already intimated to you the dangers of party in the state with particular reference to the founding of them on geographic discriminations. Let me now take a more comprehensive view and warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. The spirit, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature. So he's acknowledging that parties are going to happen. Factions are going to happen. Having its root in the strongest passions of the human mind. It exists under different shapes in all government, more or less stifled, controlled, or oppressed. But those in the popular form, it is seen as the greatest rankness and truly their worst enemy. There's an opinion, he acknowledges, there's an opinion that parties in free countries are useful checks upon the administration of government. Like, in other words, you think about an opposition party, that you need a party to check the government in power. But Washington's not actually a believer in this. And I know it's hard to understand because it's so different from how our politics are today. We have the RNC and the DNC, and they each have a headquarters building and a fundraising operation. That's not the way he saw things. Once there was an elected government, there was no need for an opposition party in his feeling. Now, he knew that there would always be disagreement. Here's what he says. There's an opinion that parties in free countries are useful checks upon the administrative government and serve to keep alive the spirit of liberty. This is within certain limits probably true. And in governments of a monarchical caste, patriotism may look with indulgence and not favor upon the spirit of party. In other words, parties are good for checking a king. But in those of the popular character, Washington says, in other words, democratic governments, governments purely elective, 
It is a spirit not to be encouraged, this party spirit that he references. And there being the constant danger of excess, the effort ought to be led by force of public opinion to mitigate and assuage it. A fire not to be quenched, it demands a uniform vigilance to prevent its bursting into a flame, lest, instead of warming, it should consume. So, a couple of things are, again, a very three-dimensional, experienced politician and general with a warning. He's not a fool. He's not against debate. He knows that there's going to be people disagreeing. But he's warning that just like that fire might warm things a little, the party spirit might be good here or there, but if everyone just breaks into factions, it's not good for the country. So again, getting away from the centrist as the mushy middle, as uh, John really referred to it well, and to the idea that this is what you're supposed to do in a democracy, to be a centrist and to check the various parties, not to look to your party leader and see how to vote. And really quickly, a few points that we never got a chance to get to. While we talked a lot about how Washington's speech was overused by those American firsters and even to the extent of supporting Nazis, it's also true that there is a lot of his, his speech that was supporting isolation and was always useful for anyone who would like to keep America out of war and will continue to be. It shows you that if you accept that we had certain wars we had to participate in, such as World War II, then this is not gospel. This is a warning from a politician, a very experienced one, from the first president. Very important, but not gospel, not a sacred text that you know can never be overridden. There was a circumstance where he had to intervene in. But he has a lot of language in there. Why quit our own to stand upon foreign ground? Why, by interweaving our destiny with that of any part of Europe, entangle our peace and prosperity in the toils of European ambition, rivalship, interest, humor, or caprice? In relation to the still subsisting war in Europe, my proclamation of the 22nd of April, 1793, is the index of my plan. In other words, my neutrality proclamation where I said we're not going to be on the side of either England or France, that's the way you should continue foreign policy. So as much as you can say it was sometimes used for wrong, you also have to acknowledge it's a powerful isolationist statement. Now, you just have to sometimes go with a reality that we had to get beyond our, our shores at different points in history. And uh, finally, we get to talk about it a lot, but John talked a lot about individual action. I thought that was important, that liberty is something you have to do while freedom is something that exists. And it, you have to acknowledge that he does have a clause in there that's extremely favorable to religion. And, of course, it's been cited by, say, Ronald Reagan. That's the part of the Washington Address that he cites, even above education, which he was a fan of. He puts religion. Here's what he says. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. In other words, for America to be good, we have to be good. And he saw religion as part of it. Now, these are more modern times. We have different views broadly of religion than we did then. I mean, I do think that there was a, more of a free thinker movement. Deism was, was very popular in Washington and 
Jefferson are using terms like providence instead of referring to Jesus. Uh, Jefferson takes pains to remove any kind of mysticism or metaphysical references from the Bible and just have it be more of life and teachings of, of the teacher, Jesus, that kind of thing. So I do think they're questioning how religion functions, but particularly at the time he's writing the 1796, religion's an important part of life and you can't forget it. So even if you want to take uh, our modern times and substitute a kind of personal rigid morality, you know, just the idea that of being a good person whether it comes from religious source or not, that's something he thinks is just as important as even education or science. Uh, finally, I wanted to ask him, how can he even use a figure like Washington in today's times with it being so forward in time? And I didn't get a chance to, to ask him that question. There was just too much else to talk about and too limited time. But I do think that the more you understand history, and for instance, well, sometimes I'll get, you know, oh, God, that Carlson guy talks on so long and he has to describe every detail, like what cookies they were eating at the meeting when they discussed whether to sign the Constitution or not. And it happens sometimes. But I also think that the more you get into details about politics and the time you see the political situation that he was facing, like, say, between... Uh, Madison running Congress at this time, and Hamilton, one of his his trusted Treasury Secretary and really kind of a lieutenant, and the bitter partisan splits and him trying to navigate it, the more you understand the politics of the time, the more you see it's a real political situation such as what happens today. Sure, we have different technologies. There's more people on, in the country and everything like that. The country's bigger. But some of those political dynamics didn't change. And the more you see him as a political actor, I think the more the advice should be taken as something real and not just kind of hand-waved away, um, you know, in political debate. I won't forget of hearing once that in the upper part of Manhattan Island in New York City, there are trees that gave Washington and his army shade when they were retreating, fighting, and retreating from the British in Washington Heights. And some of those trees are still there today, and there's trees all over America that are older than George Washington. So when you think about it in that way, yes, it's many, many years ago. It might be a long time, but is it such a long time that you can really just wave it away? Thanks for listening, and... Really, thanks for subscribing to the premium podcast. It, it does help a lot.